For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. We are basically in the super practical section of Hebrews where the author is getting into the nuts and bolts of what does a life of faith look like? What is, what is faith? And then how do we live it out? And we started in chapter 11 where he was saying, you know, the main thing that we need to understand is that what God wants from us is our faith. And we've been talking about this classic definition of biblical faith, Hebrews 11.1. 1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. And we spent some time unpacking that. And, you know, what we saw, it's about believing in the promises of God to the point where you're willing to put them into action. That's what faith is. It's trusting God to the point of being willing to act on what he says is true. And then last week, we began looking at these powerful examples of lives lived by faith. People who have done radical things by really trusting God. God spoke to them. God moved them. They decided to believe in him. And they have had a huge impact, not only on this world, but on the next world, eternity, Because they were willing to believe in God's promises and put them into action. And so our author then is drawing this together with this idea of like, okay, so now we understand what faith is. We understand what it's about. We see examples of people who have lived this way. So what about us? How do we orient our lives more toward living for God? And what I want to do is just look at four lessons on that issue from Hebrews chapter 12 this morning. And three of the four are in the first verse. So it's pretty packed. He says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. I love this because the author is putting this together and he's saying, Okay, because of all these examples and all these people who have done so much, let us decide we want to be like that too. And he, he brings the whole human experience, the whole human condition down to this one picture of it's a race. The race started the day you were born and the finish line is whenever you die. And what are you going to do in the race? How are you going to run your race? What is your race going to be about? Are you going to do what everybody else does? Are you going to try to lay low and go for comfort? Or are you going to run the race to win? To really do something with your life? To really have a life that in eternity will have significance and meaning? And will you be living a life that has an impact for others? That's the question that he's, he's really throwing out there. And so the first principle is right here. He says, you know, therefore, or really it's, you know, it's funny because therefore and since are really the same thing. So it's this emphasis. He just does all the faith of the people in Hebrews 11 and all these great examples. And he's like, all right, because of that, because of that, Because we have such a great example of people who have gone all out for God, 
with no regrets. We should learn from the examples of others. That's one of the big components of faith is, you know, when we talk about faith, yes, we have this great definition and, you know, we can intellectually get our mind around, okay, it's believing in the promises of God to the point of putting them in action, right? But until you see someone do it and experience and observe people who are actually stepping out and living radical lives for God, it's pretty easy to... Interpret that however you want. What is radical? What is all out? What does it mean? And there's something about us, there's something in human nature where we, we tend to define, you know, we, we look around the room and we decide where we are in our place in comparison to what everyone else is doing. And we say, okay, what does it mean to live your life for God? And what he's saying is, is that we should look at the top examples, the prime examples that, you know, it shouldn't just be that we're, you know, looking for people, you know, what we want to do is look for people whom are maybe doing a little bit less than us and feeling, make that, like ourselves feel better, right? And like, well, at least I'm not like them. But he's saying, no, like, look at the best examples in biblical history. The men and women of faith, the Abrahams, the Moseses, the men and women of the Bible, we need examples not just to intellectually grasp what it is that he's talking about, but to see what it looks like to actually live this out. Back in Hebrews eleven thirty-seven through 38, he describes these champions of faith. He says, they were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins, goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, Men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. So there's your example. And it's like, ugh. But that's the downside, right? I mean, the point of the author even making this and putting this together is saying they were not living for the things that we are told we are supposed to live for. They were living for something else. And so we see that they suffered. We see that there was hardship. They went without at times. But we also see from their example that they had incredible lives. James in 2.23 talks about Abraham. It says, and the scripture was fulfilled. It says, and Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteous. And Abraham was called the friend of God. That's something that's really cool. What does it mean to be the friend of God. I mean, no matter what happens in eternity, Abraham's going to be like, yes, hello, nice to meet you. I'm God's friend, Abraham. See <laughs> James if you have any questions. <laughs> He's going to be able to do that for eternity. But, I mean, what I'm saying is, is there was something special there. There was something, a connection because of his faith, because of that, where he related to God in a way that we should all want to relate to God. We should all want that kind of connection with him. Yes, he suffered. He went without. He gave up a lot. But what he gained was so much more than what he gave up. Exodus 33.11 says, Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. (sighs) Who can imagine that kind of access? 
that God would say, you know, I'm going to come down and hang out in your tent for a bit and have a chat. Moses suffered. He gave up a lot, but he trusted God. And the more he trusted God, the more intimacy grew between them because as he trusted God, he found more and more that God was trustworthy. God loves all of us. God didn't love Abraham more than he loves us. God didn't love Moses more than he loves us. Abraham and Moses opened up more of themselves to God. They invited him in more and more and more until they reached that level of intimacy. God says, I want to do that with you right now. But could you handle it? Is that really what you want? Really what you want? Is that kind of intimacy with me? Because a lot of times what we do is we, we want to be close to God, but then it starts getting scary. We start feeling like, you know, he's going to take control. He might want me to do things that might make me uncomfortable. And we, we kind of keep God at a distance. But that's not what he wants. The life of faith, the life of trusting him, we need examples. We need people we can look to. The Bible is filled with examples, but this room is also filled with examples. Part of the things that I love, you know, Tree was talking about how, you know, the main thing that we're really about is home group, home Bible studies, because we can get to know each other. We can really, you know, in a group of 20, 25, 30 people, you can really start to build in with each other and you can see what faith lived out looks like in other people's lives. And you see their mistakes and you see their successes. And you see how they handle those things, how they respond to adversity, how they react to critique, right? These are things that, you know, really, I think, help us understand and see what it looks like for people to really be on this path, to be running this race. And we need people in our lives. You and I, we all need people in our lives who are more spiritually mature than we are, who are a little further down the road because we need examples. We need to see what it looks like for a Christian in the 21st century to live out radical faith. And so we should seek out relationships like that. You know, how difficult would it be to approach somebody and say, you know, I feel like you're a little bit further down the road than I am. Could we spend some time together? I want to be where you are someday. You know, they'll probably laugh and say, I'm not sure that you do. (laughs) Once you really get to know me, you might feel differently, right? But to have a relationship where you're like, okay, you know, you've, you've made some of the kinds of choices that I feel like God is calling me to make. How did you make those choices? How did it turn out? Will you pray for me? Will you connect with me? And to have a few relationships like that 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 we gather is tremendously important. I feel like I have been so blessed in this area. I have had so many people that are mature and further down the road who have been willing to spend time with me. And frankly, a lot of that's just because I was willing to pester them. Just being, being like saying you know, to them, like, I want to understand this better. Will you teach me? Will you teach me? Will you teach me? You know? I got to spend a lot of time with Dennis McCallum, our, one of our uh, senior pastors. And he was willing to, to invest a lot in me. I spent a lot of time with a guy named Mark Avers, who was as different from Dennis McCallum as you could be. 
you know, Dennis was like this on-mission trainer, you know, equipper, sharp, and, 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 and so, you know, into the fight, into the race, and winning the race, right? And he was relational, and, and, and he, was, he could be warm, but uh, Mark was like the warmest, nicest, most relational person there ever was, and he was also into the Lord and into the Word of God. And so to spend time with both of those guys, for me, was like this incredible picture of how do I take the best of what I see in both of them and try to let that rub off on me? Can I be both? Or to the degree that I am able you know, to have examples in different areas, like different people have strengths in different areas. And so to want to learn from the strengths of others is incredibly beneficial if you really want to get serious about what, with your walk with God. And I also highly recommend not only learning from their success, but I like to learn from other people's failure where I can. <laughs> I kind of make that, you know, a life goal is uh, to not have to be doomed to repeat the mistakes of the past. And of course I fail, and of course uh, I step out there and I screw up all the time. But don't let the failures of spiritual examples stand in the way of understanding that they can be examples even though they're human, even though they're broken. Even our biblical examples, the Bible goes way out of its way to make sure that we understand. These are flawed, broken human beings with problems. Abraham had problems. Moses had problems. David had problems. The disciples had problems. But just because somebody is wrong or makes a mistake or is weak in one area doesn't mean that they can't be an example to you and in others. And also, it doesn't mean that we can't learn from their mistakes as well as their successes. So this has to be lived out and worked out relationally, not just in theoretical knowledge, but in our connections with others. The second thing he says is, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. You know, the imagery here is very powerful. It's imagine running a race, you know, with two 50-pound dumbbells tucked under your arms. You know, if you want to run a race, you can't have too much baggage. You can't, it's going to seriously affect your ability to move forward if you're weighed down. And so the point then is, is that we have to agree with God about the burden of sin. And I, I framed it that way very carefully because I think, you know, we tend to, yeah, well, we say sin's bad, right? Sin's bad, it's gross, and, you know, Jesus died to, to, to pay for our sins. But I think we become somewhat emotionally disconnected from that, especially when it comes to our sin. And what we tend to do is say, yeah, it's bad, but, you know, it's, it's unavoidable. Uh, you know, it's a process. We're, 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 you know, maybe down the road, but, you know, um, there's a lot of sin in our lives, a lot of rebellion against God, a lot of selfish things that we do. And our attitude toward it is basically like, well, yeah, I'm a broken human being. You're just, the people around me are just going to have to live with that until one day maybe God makes me grow. And that is not what he's saying here. You know, that is sin, right? You and me, we're the donkey, and we're saying, I've got this under control. 
It's not as cumbersome as you think. It's not as, you know, I'm still very good at pulling this cart, you know, and our legs are going like this in the air, right? We are under an illusion to say that this is not in our way. And that's, that's the author's point is to say, no, if you really want to run this race, you have to look at those weak spots. You have to look at that baggage and you have to decide, you know, are you willing to let it go? And we look at our sin and we say, we, we are so good, so good at justifying, right? It's under control. It's only affecting me. I mean, you know, it's not like other people are being hurt by this. That's wrong. We don't sin in a vacuum. The things that we do that are selfish definitely hurt the people we love the most. And yet we convince ourselves that it doesn't impact them. We convince ourselves it's not really impacting my closeness with God. You know, God's forgiven me. Jesus died for my sins. And that's totally true. And it doesn't impact, even impact your closeness with God like God's grossed out by you. And like he can't come near you. He's like, oh, I can't believe he did that. When, when Jesus died on the cross for your sins, he died for all of your sins. And you are completely and fully known. So God doesn't withdraw from you. What happens is, is when you sin, you withdraw from him. You do. Because it's hard to do something you know is wicked and evil and selfish and then bare your heart to God. We get slowed down. You know, very few people can, can you know, lose their temper and yell at their spouse and then turn and have an intimate time of God with God of prayer and, and, and in the Word. Because it weighs us down. It bothers us, and it creates a barrier to the intimacy that we want to have with God. And we say, well, I'll make it stop. I'll, you know, at some point, I'm just going to decide that's enough, and this thing, whatever it is, and hopefully, you know, my prayer is, is that as we talk about this this morning, God will help bring something to your mind. Hopefully not all the things, Right? But that there's something, is there something that's encumbering your race? Of course there is. There's multiple things. But there's some things that are weightier than others. And if there's something encumbering you that God has been putting his finger on, then my prayer is just that you'll, you'll give us your attention on this and realize you know, that this is something God loves you, you are fully accepted. You are fully loved. But there is something that's holding you back from intimacy with him. That's why the author says, lay aside every encumbrance. Now, if you're like me, you look at your sin and you're like, lay aside. Like, I want to defeat my sin. I want to smash it. I want to make an oath. I will never, never do that again. Or will it away, Right? Like, that's how, that's how my, that is my approach to all the sin that I am still struggling with right there. Because the stuff that God's had victory over was the stuff that he convinced me to let go of in his strength, in his power. The Bible doesn't say, smash your sin. It says, let go, lay aside every encumbrance. And what that means is that, that we have to see sin for what it really is. It's something that's destroying us. It's something that's hurting the people that we love. It's something that was so ghastly, 
so horrible that God had to come in the person of Jesus Christ and die to take the punishment that we deserve upon himself so that we could be reconciled to him. It's so serious in that sense that it is, it is affecting your quality of life. And the quality of the relationships you have, not only with God, but with your children and your spouse and the people in your life. To let go of sin means that we have to want more of who God is. It really is a sense of, you know, when we have these issues, these encumbrances, God is saying, put that down, it's bad for you. And we're saying, yeah, but I kind of like it. It has an upside too, Lord. You may not understand. And he's like, no, you don't understand. This is killing you. This is, a, this is lowering your quality of life. And we're like, well, I know that it seems that way on the outside. And we have these debates and arguments with God in our heart about we don't want to let it go. We have to decide that closeness with God is more valuable than what sin can provide. Which on the surface is like, duh, of course, but try it. Live it. It's a whole different experience when you get into that, that dynamic. And we also need to depend on God and others to help carry us through to break those habits that have been defined and, and get out of those grooves that have been defined, in many cases, over decades. I love this verse in Ephesians 4, 22 through 24. He says that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness and truth. You know what that verse always makes me think of? The movie Aliens. It was definitely one of my favorite all-time movies growing up. It's, it's a horror slash action. Alien is just a very scary movie. It's like just intellectually disturbing. Aliens is like action and scary. And, you know, hopefully you all are familiar with the imagery in the sense that there's these aliens running around and one of the things they have is acid for blood. And it's like serious acid. It burns through metal in seconds, right? And so one of the problems with killing these things is they bleed. And if you get their blood on you, then that will kill you very quickly. And there's this one scene where this tough soldier, you know, he's got all this armor on, and he kills one up close with a shotgun, gets splattered with this acid, and it's burning through his armor, and he has seconds to get his armor off. That's sin. That, that, that's, what God, that's God's perspective on sin, is you've got this armor that you think is tough and you think is going to save you. But sin is burning through the outer man at an alarming rate, and you have to take off that outer man and throw it to the ground so that you can be rescued and experience the fullness of what God has for you. He says, lay aside the old self which is being corrupted. That thing that we want to hold on to is decaying before our eyes. It's dying. Let it go. But yet sin is something we turn to for comfort. 
Because a lot of times before we even know the Lord, we learn how to survive. And a lot of our survival tactics are selfish and evil and do harm to others. Whether it's, you know, we learn to keep others at a distance because we can't trust them. So no one knows who you really are and you are relationally disengaged and selfish that way. Whether you lash out at anger because you want to punish people who hurt you because you've learned that the way to keep people from hurting you is to preemptively strike. Whether you've learned that when you get sad because people hurt you and disappoint you, you can turn to sex or drugs or whatever else and that will lift you back up and it will feel good and it can make you feel good for a short time. If you've done that, you've also learned that the backlash is even worse. And it doesn't actually help you. It makes you even worse off than you were before. But yet we cling to it as though it's protecting us. As though it's going to help us. All these mechanisms that we develop stay with us. And God says, you can trust me. You can trust that you are valuable, that you are loved, and that I am going to take care of you, and that eternity is taken care of, and you don't have to protect yourself so much. And we say, but that's my armor. And God says, sin is burning through your armor, and it's going to kill you if you don't take it off. But it's my armor. And that's the dynamic we often find ourselves in. So no wonder the author says, lay aside all the encumbrances. The third point is let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. That this race is hard, it's long, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. And one thing that we have to determine to do if we want to get serious in our relationship with God is pretty simple, don't quit. Don't quit this race. Don't just decide it's too hard and it's too long and I'm, I'm too messed up. Everyone that's ever run this race has felt like it's too hard, it's too long, and I'm too messed up. But they've continued on in faith because they believe not only that it works as a way of life, but that it's true. This is very much what the Hebrews audience, the audience of the book of Hebrews, was being tempted toward as the author is writing this down. They're getting persecuted, and they're thinking, I should just return to classical rabbinic Judaism And all of this pain and suffering will go away. And the author says, run the race with endurance. Do not quit. You are on the right path. And yes, it's hard, but don't give up. This is an ongoing test, a reality of walking with God, of wanting to live for God in a fallen world is that we will constantly be challenged to give up and live like everybody else lives. And that's okay, that's not too hard to deal with for a day or maybe a week, but for your whole life in an ongoing way, having the erosion of the world system wearing against you, saying, don't take it that seriously. It's not that important. You're missing out on these other good things and having that grind against you for a lifetime is very challenging. And frankly, the longer we're in the race, the more tempting it is. What we tend to want to do is say, well, you know, this is a long race and I'm over the halfway point, so more of my life has been about this race. 
maybe it's time to relax a little bit and lower my guard. And we get older and older, and then we start thinking about, you know, I've lived most of my life this way, and now it's time to, now it's time to enjoy the fruits of my labor, and I don't need to be as focused on, on serving others. It's time to take care of me. But that's not the biblical model. That's not Christ's life. It's not Paul's life. They served and lived until the race was finished. They finished strong. And we need a long-term strategy for how we're going to do that. I think the author actually provides some insight in verse 2 here. How do we have a long-term strategy for, for running the marathon? He says, fix your eyes on Jesus. Which again, you read that and you're like, isn't that a song? Or, you know, what does it even mean, fix your eyes on Jesus? How does that help me? You know, that sounds like, that sounds like an answer that you could hold in, you know, in reserve for any Sunday school in America that would probably answer any question, right, that they would ask you in Sunday school, you know. What should we do about this? Well, we should fix our eyes on Jesus. But what he means in the context is actually way deeper than that and way more interesting and way more helpful. You know, one of the way, things that they teach runners, sprinters, and, and even marathon runners is that the way to win the race, one, no one ever won a race who quit. And he's already said, you know, that's, that's one of the primary strategies here is never stop. You know, I, was, uh, I saw Chariots of Fire for the first time recently. And, uh, boy, that movie's old. And not for our time. But it was, it was really interesting, really cool. And one of the things that happened early in that movie is the guy got shoved off the track in the middle of a race. And he got back up and, and wound up winning the race because he was so determined. He was just not, he was, there was no quit. It didn't matter to him if he lost. He was going to finish. And he wound up winning because he was so determined to, to put everything he had into every race that he ran. And that's the attitude that we're talking about here. Another aspect of this, really honestly, is just to keep yourself healthy. You know, if you want to win a race, whether it's a physical race or the race of the human condition, you know, um, training is good, but also rest. You know, anybody who's into athletics will tell you that overtraining is counterproductive and is putting a lot of effort toward actually running your body down. And so if we want to be radical for God, we have to have a plan for getting equipped, for doing good work, for engaging with people, spending time with people, but we also have to have a plan for keeping ourselves healthy, taking a vacation, spending time with our loved ones, getting a good night's sleep. If you go really hard all the time, you'll either burn out emotionally or physically or both. He's saying, we want to run this race to win. We need to keep our focus on the finish line. That's what they say is like to keep your head. Don't turn your head to the left. Don't turn your head to the right. But look straight to where it is that you want to go. That's how you run a race. And so he's saying, fix your eyes on Christ. And what I think he means by that is, one, we have to remember that Jesus has also run this race. He was born and he died. The start of the race, the finish of the race, right there, birth and death. 
Jesus Christ ran this race, and when we are told to fix our eyes on him, what we're being told is look at his example. How did he live? How did he run his race? And let that be a model for ours. The second component to it, though, that I think is equally, equally important is Jesus not only ran the race, he finished the race, and he's at the finish line cheering for you. When it says fix your eyes on Christ, it's saying focus on the finish line, focus on the, the, the end game of what this means, and know that Christ is waiting there with open arms, that when you cross that tape, he's going to wrap his arms around you, he's going to tell you, well done, good and faithful servant, and he's going to take you into eternity where there's love and peace and joy and no more evil. And that should bolster us in our race to know that the end game is love. Love with God and love with our fellow man. And we say, you know, but it's hard. It's hard. Loving your enemy is hard. Yeah. It's so hard that few of us ever have tried it. It's really hard. Disagreeing with our culture, standing out in a way that is really uncool, and taking a stand for the things of God can really, you can pay a heavy price for that. Being misunderstood, being, you know, people have these conceptions about what it means to be a Christian, being judged and being lumped in. There are so many bad examples out there of people who claim to be Christians or Christ followers or pastors. And they have, they have just really done a job in making our culture believe that Christians are terrible people. And being lumped in with all of that is hard. But our author in our passage goes again, and I switch over to the NLT here because I think it's a little more clear. He puts it this way. He says, think of all the hostility Jesus endured from sinful people. Then you won't be, become weary and give up. After all, you have not given your lives in your struggle against sin. Fix your eyes on Jesus starts to become a little more impactful there, doesn't it? He's saying, yes, it's hard and you're suffering and things are difficult and your faith is difficult to live out. But when you, when you worry about that, when that starts to weigh on you, think about Jesus' example and all of the hatred, all of the strife, all of the shame, all of the betrayal that he faced and yet continued on because he believed in what he was doing and it was worth rescuing us to face those kinds of problems. And if we're having this conversation and contemplating this the way that the author is talking about here, then we haven't done it to the point that he did it, which is death. And even that is worth it, well worth it, according to the Bible. And so remembering what he, he showed us that it's worth it to live that all out for him. He demonstrated that, and we need to remember that. Finally, the fourth point, Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. That word perfecter is teleotas which means one who brings to completion. And I think this is a really important aspect of living out your faith in a practical way is we have to remember that spiritual growth is a process. 
It's not that we are going to make a decision once in our life and then from then on out, we're going to be perfectly spiritually mature. It's a growth process. They call it walking with God because you start somewhere and then you end somewhere. That's what a walk is. And the goal is is to live a life where you are continually growing in the process of spiritual maturity. Philippians 1.6, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus, that God is going to do His part to stay with you through this process. And the fact that it's a process is really important to understand. Because if we don't understand it, then we're going to be constantly disappointed with ourselves as though we're letting God down. We're going to be like, I can't believe I'm a Christian and I'm doing this. And I've still got these struggles. And that my life is still defined by these things over here that are an affront to who God is. And we can shame ourselves. We can gas out. You know what gassing out is? is It's a running term where you just run out of energy and you fall before you finish the race. We are constantly trying to motivate ourselves with disappointment in ourselves. It will do two things. One, it will guarantee catastrophic failure in your spiritual life. And two, it will likely do a lot of harm and a lot of damage to others because if you put yourself under that, the odds are you'll be putting others under that as well. We have to realize that it's a process and that beating yourself up that you should be further along is counterproductive to spiritual growth. It's not something that will help you. Shame and fear and disappointment are not valid motivators for spiritual growth. Love Love is the fuel that we need to be operating on. It's the only thing that will suffice. Particularly, God's love is what helps us to grow and change. It's what convinces us to let go of more and more of ourselves and trust Him. Shame, beating yourself up, is a self-centered attempt to gain control over your own behavior. Now, I'm not saying that discipline doesn't matter. It does matter. We make choices, and there is a need to decide to do the right thing even when we don't feel like it. But what I'm saying is, is that even if you have that, if you don't have faith and you don't have grace, it's not enough. You will break down. We love, like I said earlier, to compare ourselves to others. And use that as motivation. I think I'm getting a little further ahead of this side of the room over here. Feeling pretty good about that. Pumping myself up. Feeling like, you know, how many people here as far along as I am? I think I'm doing pretty good. You know, that's a recipe for disaster spiritually. God in his mercy will ensure that you fall on your face before you finish the finish line. Because... You will do so much harm to yourself and others if he doesn't intervene. All any of this will do is kill your joy and make walking with God miserable and laborious. 
the process of spiritual growth, in that process, there will be many peaks and many valleys. There'll be great successes and there'll be horrible failures. It's built in. You should expect that. And when you succeed, you should praise God and beware because it is easy to fall and, and fail after a great success. And when you fail, you should not be surprised. You should not be horrified. You should be like, well, that's why I became a Christian to begin with is I'm not capable of doing this by myself. And you got to get back in the race. You got to get up and you got to keep moving and you got to trust him. The process will not finish until you finish the race. That's the whole point. Now, there might be people here this morning who are sitting in their seat and they're saying, I didn't even know there was a race. I'm not sure what you're talking about. Well, the race started the day you were born, but to get off the finish line or to get off the starting line, you have to start a relationship with God. You need to be connected with Him in order to fulfill and find who your Creator made you to be. There's a psalm here that I think is really great in Psalm 25, verses 4 through 11. Let me just read it. He says, Show me the right path, O Lord. Point out the road for me to follow. Lead me by your truth and teach me, for you are the God who saves me. All day long I put my hope in you. Remember, O Lord, your compassion and unfailing love, which you have shown from long ages past. Do not remember the rebellious sins of my youth. Remember me in the light of your unfailing love, for you are merciful, O Lord. The Lord is good and does what is right. He shows the proper path to those who go astray. He leads the humble in doing right, teaching them his way. The Lord leads with unfailing love and faithfulness all who keep his covenant and obey his commands. For the honor of your name, O Lord, forgive me my many, many sins. So if you've never had a prayer like that, let me ask that you consider turning to him this morning and asking him for his forgiveness. Jesus Christ died on the cross so that you could be forgiven. And what he's saying here is, is what I found out, God, is that when we ask you to show us a way to lead us in your paths, you answer those prayers. And when we ask you for forgiveness, we find it, even when we've been really bad and really rebellious and really far away from you. And for many of us here, this kind of prayer was something that we came to a point where we said that to God. And it changed our lives. And it changed the way we view the world. And it changed the way we view each other. And we still have many, many sins that still need to be forgiven. But we have the tools and the power and the community and the God to grow and really change. And we want to invite you to share that with us because it's the best thing that there is. I think the final point is we run this race together. We're not really competing with each other. We're a team trying to finish the race together. And it's a tough race. And so rather than hide our sin and our failures and shame, we need to make others aware of our burdens so that they can help us bear those burdens. We need to be honest with each other. We need to be real with each other. We need to talk about what's really going on. And let me just say that if there, if there is an encumbrance that God brought to your mind this morning, let me 
beg you to share it with someone else, someone who's spiritual and someone who can pray with you and who can help you. We run this race together rather than competing with one another. We lift one another up. And we need one another to keep pushing forward because if not left to our own devices, we will all settle for less than what we could actually accomplish. We can do so much more together. And that's what I'm hoping we can be about as a fellowship is to build together a community of people that are in this race to win it, helping one another along the way under God's grace and in His power to see real change, not only in our lives, but in our city. So there you have the beginning of Hebrews 12. Thank you, God, for this time together and for the way that your word really does come alive and it makes so much sense and it answers so many of our questions. And I just pray that we could uh, spend some time together reflecting on some of those things. Maybe there's some, some conversations that need to happen this morning um, about our walk and our race and how we're doing. And just pray that you'll open up opportunities to do that for fellowship here afterwards in a way that is super centered on your love and, uh, and your grace. Amen. This study was recorded at Zenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.